0: Monster Mash. Yes, it's a great episode. We don't have sound effects this year, although we did last year.
1: No, you know what? I did put a little music under one part of it, but I awesome. did it really soft. And I have a question because I wanted to ask you when we were recording with John Verico, Verico Veins.
0: Um, oh, don't say that. Oh, the guy probably gets that like, I get Mark Went. Where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, John Verica was really fun to talk to. In fact, it's a nice long episode. for this. So for those of you who have long attention span theater, this is the perfect podcast for you. And there's some big nugs right at the end. So, you know, either fast forward if you can't hang or, um, you know, listen to the whole episode.
1: I say listen to the whole episode. I wanted to ask you this during the recording. What's one of your scariest experiences With media, like a movie, a book you were reading? Well,
0: I think it goes back to um, my childhood, watching TV. Um, There was a show on called Legend of Hell House.
1: Oh, I remember Legend of Hell House.
0: And I was young, and it was late, and it was pretty good at scaring me. And I was like, bah, that definitely impacted me for sure. Um, Other than that... I won't go to see things like The Exorcist or Saw, or I just won't subject myself to that.
1: You've never seen The 1975 or 6 Exorcist?
0: That is correct. Wow. We covered this in our episode. Did we?
1: Yeah.
0: But no, I I never will. Yeah. I have no desire to see that film, and uh, partially because... In grade school, there was a guy named Bobby who saw it, and he came to school and every day he he ran lines from that movie.
1: Oh my god,
0: over and over and over. And I was like, this guy is like, he's like nine years old. He's
1: possessed.
0: <laughs> he's he wants to be possessed. Like he was actively wishing for the attention. And I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with a movie that's going to do this to some point.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's um, wild.
0: Which isn't to say that it's bad art. I'm not saying it's bad art. It's just, it succeeded in in the fact that it repulses me. I have no desire to give anything, any emotional or headspace to that film.
1: Yeah, it's wild how there's films like that. We're, we're, this is one of our loudest intros ever. <laughs> but, it's not really an intro. It's become a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <I> oh, no. <laughs> this is our Halloween episode with John Verica. Um, But it's wild how there's brilliantly created films that I know of. Requiem for a Dream, The Exorcist, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, the three I know of that are amazing films. And I don't know that I'd recommend them to someone because they are so disturbing.
0: Right. That's the key. It's like, I don't need to, you know, hurt myself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So bust open a bottle of Adrena Cone Soda. And uh, enjoy this Friday, the 13th episode, recording for Halloween. Yeah. Sis or no? Mapping, lapping, lapping, This is Zichur
0: Vegan Dam. Yo, it's Nicho. Sitaki Two Outlaws on the Lamb, taking the back roads through America.
1: You can't drink enough coffee for this show. Ah, ah, ah. And now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws, Greg and Mark.
0: All right. Welcome to another episode of the Moped Outlaws. Yeah, special Friday the 13th Halloween edition. (laughs) And you can figure that out. Just do some math. Um, Our guest today is John Verico, and he is, among many things, uh, a Navy Master Chief Journalist a uh, short order cook, a disco dance instructor, a stand-up comic, a media spokesman, and he has a master's in organizational leadership. In fact, in 2016, he was in the Who's Who's Award for leadership com- and communications. He also collects classic monster movie memorabilia. This is going to be a fun show, ladies and gentlemen. I am so pumped to have you here. (laughs) Welcome, John. I am so pumped to be here. Thanks,
2: Marcosaurus and Igor. Yes. (laughs) It's
0: (laughs) Igor. All
1: right, so wait, let's, let's just find out what is your most prized treasure, if you can even name one, That you have in your monster memorabilia.
2: Oh, my goodness. Uh, You know, so one of the things that I love in my collection, and I do collect monster movie memorabilia, as a matter of fact, the local newspaper called it my demented man cave. Um, But one of my favorite things in there is not really it's not like screen used or anything, but it's a life size replica of the fiend without a face. And oh, wow. It's kind of obscure, uh it was a nineteen fifties sci fi yeah, movie and yeah. the, the, the the this the monster was a brain and a spinal cord. And that's it. It just kind of creeps around and it leaps up and sucks your brain out of your head. But it's a it's a full size, you know, scale model of
1: the thing. And wow. So you have no relationships in your life. huh? (laughs) What was that? You have no relationships in your life with this kind of stuff hanging around. You know, my wife is very, very tolerant. (laughs) (laughs) That was a very admirable way to put that.
2: She puts up with my my silliness, but I've gotten her into the classic monster movies too. So, and we we just love the old the old classics and uh, there's so much uh thrill and pleasure and lessons to be learned from them. And so, yeah, I've just been been nuts about them ever since I was a kid.
0: Yeah, Godzilla started out as a movie about ecological discussion, destruction, right? There's so much to it that's that's uh pertinent really to the fate and and uh, of humanity, but it's also about the monsters. It's all about the monsters. (laughs) It really is.
1: Is it true that um, Frankenstein, her name was Mary, right? The author, Mary
2: Shelley, Mary Shelley uh,
1: wrote that in three days. And it was this big sort of party Victorian party with all these authors. And there was this dare, like who could write the scariest story?
2: So now I wasn't there personally because they didn't invite me. What? Um, oh, that, I know. That, I know. Exactly. But, uh, but, but yes, that is the kind of the, the backstory behind it is, is she wrote it on a dare, uh, where they were trying to outdo each other in scary stories and they didn't suspect that a, a woman was capable
0: of writing something that was, uh, that was uh, so terrifying. One year on summer vacation, my parents and um, I and my sisters all went to stay with some friends out in the woods who were building their cabin. And we were all sleeping on platforms in the middle of the woods. Cabin in the woods, would, man. It's just I thought, like well, <laughs> I thought it would be super cool to bring a copy of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and read it in my bed at night by candlelight. <laughs> and that was... That was not good. Like every little crunch, (laughs) every little falling leaf, like, but you know what? It was a very effective uh, experience. I I definitely remember um, reading that book by Candlelight in the deep dark of the woods at night. That is awesome.
2: That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and and, uh, I'm sorry, but that is like such a classic setting for all the the stupidest bonehead uh, you know teenage slasher flicks ever right it was just yeah.
1: <laughs> so are you into that brand of horror the slash and gore
2: actually no okay. no the, the stuff that that intrigued me and uh, if you don't mind I'll give you a little backstory when I Absolutely. was a, when I was a kid I was a small kid I was uh, when I graduated high school I was only five three and weighed 110 pounds Wow um, so I was the little pipsqueak in school that was picked on by bullies a lot. And so um I found my inspiration in monster movies because in monster movies, no matter how big, bad, and nasty the monster was, the little guy could still win, so I knew there was hope. And so most of that I got from the old classic movies. And uh uh and and the really cheesy stuff of the nineteen fifties, you know, the the ones where you can see the strings and all that stuff right. and the rubber strings. Uh, yeah, oh, Vincent Price is was probably one of my favorites, but now that's less about monsters and more about like true, uh, true horror and uh, uh,
0: more psychological horror yeah. that comes out of most of his stuff. Yeah, it's it's more like the thing, the Blob, you know, the, Godzilla, doctor. the Doctor, oh,
1: the Blob. <laughs> No but what was the Vincent Price one the Doctor Fib- Vibes
2: oh yeah. yes yes but yeah. then you know then you're getting into kind of like you know almost like the early version of Saw That's true you know it's 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 all about coming up with unique ways to kill your enemies and it was it was very very it's very different it was uh, one of his later later efforts and uh, and a very different kind of message it was all it was a revenge movie uh, it really That's was That's true yeah, same well, the with mummy and, yeah,
0: the mummy and Godzilla and Mothra and, you know, well, and and you
2: know, Frankenstein, Dracula, the, uh, the mummy, the wolfman, uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon. And if you realize as you watch some of these classic movies, a lot of them all really are statements about society. And a lot of them had like built in love stories. And and there were so many lessons to actually be gotten from them. If you look at Frankenstein, uh, the way the movie portrayed it in particular, but even going back to, you know, Mary Shelley's original book. I mean, Frankenstein wasn't necessarily a monster. Yes, he was created out of dead body parts. But really what he was was a special
1: needs child that really never got the attention that he should have gotten. Right. Isn't there that a classic climatic scene at the end is him with his father saying, I needed you. Where were yes. You?
0: yes, exactly. And that's and just it's it. that we we turn people into monsters by the way we let our fear rule Bingo. the way we relate to people and people who are different. That's exactly it. We create. The monsters, we make them into what they are because, and it's all because of how we treat how we treat them, yes. which is also the theme of Forbidden Planet. Right. Which is that <sighs> that giant machine, the Krell machine creates monsters from our subconscious, our, our id. Yes. It's the, the same monsters thing. from the id.
2: Yeah. 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 And that's so true. I mean, what, what it really comes down to is, you know, we all have these these internal fears and, and a lot of them come from our own insecurities. And so we manifest in, in with our imagination the behavior of others and how, how we fear those other things. Uh, and and in, that, in doing that, we kind of create the way we live our
1: life. I, so I have a question. If we go back to your childhood, your first experience in your memory of watching a horror film and being drawn in instead of repelled, what have you found? Was that resonance for you? Was it like high school bully? Like, was that really it, or? it? It absolutely
2: was. The high school bullies were my monsters.
1: Okay. So you saw this film and you were like, oh, there is hope for this little guy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I looked at King Kong and, and I actually saw King Kong through two lenses. One, was and, and this helped me kind of understand the bully mentality too. So, so looking at King Kong, right? You got this big, enormous, giant gorilla, um, who pretty much can take on the world, and he's got to constantly prove himself. Everything is challenging him because he is so big and bad. Everything wants to take him on, and he and every step he takes, he has to constantly prove himself by defeating all of these other enemies. And so here he finds a moment of, of peace and a moment of love with this, this, this woman with, with the Fay Wray character. And, uh, and he can't be, can't even enjoy it because everyone is trying to take her away from him. Meanwhile, the little guy, right? The hero, the, the love interest uh, is, is trying to rescue her and he is able to do so he's able to do so from being brave from being innovative from from working with others developing a team and and coming together and he was able to overcome this the the ultimate power that is kong and then like i said on the other side of things kong winds up being defeated because of uh, of the the little guy being able to be more ingenious and and things like that. So there's there was so so much involved in in all of that. And so I saw in myself you know the the little guy who who saved the girl and 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 was able to come out of this because he was able to come up with new ideas and new ways of fighting back against the bully or keeping the bully uh, um at bay. And at the same time I saw in my enemies, in the bullies in school, I saw them trying to be the Kong. And I saw them and, and then I got to understand what their mentality was. And I was able to to approach them a little bit differently. And we wound up finding, you know, a
0: little bit of a balance. Wow.
1: This so ties
0: in, this ties uh, into leadership. Because <laughs> no, <it's, the> innovation, <laughs> what's scary about that? <laughs> well, it can be depending on who you are, but the innovation and the willingness, the necessity really of the context of, of your situation, driving innovation and driving ingenuity. And then what's, what's represented is the, the monster of the masses who are stuck in the old way, who are, are doing the things the old way, which have become ineffective over time. And so the, I can see the parallels here, and why why it got you into leadership speaking and and leadership motivation, and then also <clears throat> other aspects of your life. Like I, I want to dive into all of it, but let's start with you talking a little bit about share your fire and your motivational speaking work right now, and, and see if you can tie that into what you learned as a young man. You know, watching King Kong.
2: Sure. So, you know, one one thing if you kinda go back to the uh the old classic movies and I'm talking like really kind of the, the gothic horrors, right? When they were they were chasing the monster, they'd get the village together and go chase the monster off. And they all were carrying, you know, torches. And so so the torch becomes kind of a symbol. If you think about it, the monster is is what is in the darkness. We fear what we can't see, what we can't understand. And so the torch, it wasn't the fire of the torch. It wasn't the heat of the torch that was the real, uh, real weapon. The weapon there was the light that the torch brought and illuminated the area and, and brought the monster to light. And once you can see it, you know, then you know what you're dealing with and it's not quite as fearful. And so that is kind of the whole concept there of understanding what Um, what everybody brings to the table, right? Everybody has their own light. Everybody has their own motivational torch, that fire that burns inside them that keeps them motivated to do things. And if you want people to work together on a team, then you want them to be motivated and feel that passionate fire about being part of it, right? And being part of the project. So there are certain elements that we need, uh, in order to, to, to keep that motivation, right? We need to know that we are, we are trusted. We have to be able to trust the people that we work with. We have to trust the other team members. We have to trust the people in charge. We have to trust the people that are working for us. And depending on where you are in the hierarchical structure, it doesn't really matter. There still has to be trust across the spectrum. The second piece that, you, that we need is is opportunity, and that is given equal opportunity, the same opportunity as every other team member, to be able to be a part, to contribute, and to make a difference. Another piece of that is, is you need to have respect. You need to be respected for what you can bring to the table. You need to be respected as an individual and so many times in in the workplace people are hired because of their background their experience their expertise and they're brought on the team and then they're micromanaged right so they're not respected for what they brought they're not you know they're not acknowledged for their background and their accomplishments the the other piece obviously is communication uh, you need to be able to communicate across the spectrum. Um, you have to understand what the vision is. We have to understand what we're trying to accomplish. We have to understand what who's responsible for what. And being able to communicate that openly and without barriers and without playing secret squirrel or any other garbage, being able to, to openly communicate with each other and have the comfort to communicate when things aren't going so well. Uh, and then
0: also the comfort to being able to communicate a success that somebody else isn't going to steal credit for. Well, and then, and then in, if, that, in that sense of safety, and that sense of comfort, yeah. then people are willing to shine their fire on the monsters that are lurking within the organization. They're getting to get there. Breath. Yes, yes, exactly. So, you know, that whole thing about you don't have to blow
2: out my candle to make yours burn brighter. Yeah. Uh, it, it's that that whole same thing, right? And the understanding that there is um, – we complement each other's brightness and each other's fire. And if one person on the team has a nice bright fire, you don't have to be jealous of that. We can share. We can share in that glory. We can share in the warmth. We can share in the light. It lights the way for everyone. Exactly. And so the final piece of all of this, all these elements that I'm talking about, is is humanity and understanding that we are people. I thought it was horror. No, no. Monsters. the horror like is monsters. not having it.
1: <laughs> that begins with H.
2: <laughs> but the horror is in not having, not having humanity in the way you treat each other <laughs> and understanding that we all are human beings with a whole life and not just what's happening in the workplace or whatever. So all that crazy stuff that I just talked about, right? Trust, opportunity, respect, communication, and humanity. That's my acronym for TORCH. And that is the light that we bring. Uh, that we need to keep our own motivation going, and also how we need to treat each other so that others motiv- other motivation uh, can also thrive say that again what 's the acronym again? It is trust, opportunity, respect, communication, and humanity
1: or oh, wait or, humanity. Or. <laughs> um, I have a question because for me, I have this bias that so much of the business world doesn 't really get brought into the personal world. So with you and your wife, are these elements of torch a conscious part of at least your interaction with her?
2: You know, it's an interaction with with everybody. But yes, the foundation of our relationship is on trust. When I first met my wife, I was in the Navy. I was overseas a lot and I had seen. Yeah, I'd come yeah. off of a broken relationship where mm-hmm. my my ex-fiance cheated on me and so I couldn't trust her when I was in the same neighborhood. So I was like, I can't trust anybody. A especially if I'm thousands skeleton. of thousands of miles away. And I saw so many of my shipmates having their relationships just kind of fall down the tubes because of the, the, the separations. And, uh, you know, months at a time at sea. And You know, I'll just just put dating myself here because we're going back to, uh, quite a while ago. Um, we didn't have email. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have ways to stay in touch except for snail mail. And if the ship wasn't in port for a while, it might be a while before any mail got right. Now I was a Navy journalist and so I was writing all day long in my day job. The last thing I wanted to do in my off time was write. (laughs) So. So I've got this massive I've got boxes of letters from my wife and she's got this little sta- little stack with a rubber band on it. You know, that's her memory from that time. But the way I would communicate with her was that when we went to a foreign port and we found, uh yeah, you know, it was a friendly port uh, and I would go and seek out the international telephone exchange. And get on a waiting list for an overseas line, and it was usually three or four hours, and you can 't leave the place because if you do, you lose your place in line Wow and it was usually three or four hours uh, six hours on holiday to to get an open line to overseas to call um, at the time my fiance, and uh, it was seventeen dollars a minute collect
1: Wow. <sighs>
2: So I think she only married me because she invested so much at that point <laughs> yeah. that she just wanted to get, get kind of a
1: uh, some mind. of
2: money back. But uh, but no, in all seriousness, because of these massive separations, trust was really the core of our relationship. And we learned that we could trust each other. And that was so incredibly intense wow. um, uh, between us. And that was really the, the thing that caused our strongest bond add to that the fact that we gave each other the opportunity to grow and be individuals. It's like I never tried to dominate her and her interests and she never tried to to steer me away from my monster movies or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, so, you know, if she wasn't into something, she still let me do my thing and I still let her do her thing if I wasn't into that. And because we had the trust as the foundation, right. we could do that and give each other that opportunity. And we respect each other, you know, and we communicate constantly with each other, um, all the time. And most importantly, again, is we treat each other like fellow human beings and we understand that, you know, we have hearts. And so, so all of that, yes, torch is the foundation and it's not just the foundation of my relationship with my wife, but my relationship in business, but also. Across the spectrum of of relationships, friends, everybody else, if we really think about it, your best relationships have those elements in them.
0: You're casting a light up across the the field, uh, the the universe of possibility.
2: You know, it is all about taking that light from within yourself
0: and sharing it out to ah, others.
1: That was cool.
0: <laughs> yeah. For, for those How of do you do who that? are listening and didn't see it, go to YouTube.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question. Part yes, of- I, I am not. I
2: am not above using cheesy dad magic tricks to get a point across. All right. That, all right, I, that I, was uh, good.
1: Beautiful. That was a good one. Um, part of when you were talking earlier about these monsters I realized that the monsters that I've had an affiliation with are the broken ones that didn't work out. For instance, um, Hunchback and Notre Dame. And even with King Kong, like part of what I think really destroyed him, I'm thinking of the Jessica Land version, was a broken heart, you know, ultimately. Um, Have you had those types of experience in your life?
2: If I didn't, I wouldn't be human.
1: True.
2: I mean, you, you think about it. Yeah, we all have. I mean, I, I think we've all suffered a loss uh, at some point in our life. Um, and 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 it's true. And the, but the thing is, yeah, in the monster movies, it's the end of the movie because okay, you know, the monster's been defeated and all that. But I, you know, in, in reality, we have to go on. And so the biggest part of what I work on with people too is understanding that resiliency and how we can come back from, from what can be, uh, you know, a really traumatic situation. Um, you know, you can look at any situation, um, that, that you face and you can, So there's this really corny analogy I'm going to use. Yeah. Uh, And it's not monster related, unfortunately, but, but I, I think you'll, I think you'll get it. Right. So you can, uh, you can look at things and behave and react to things. If you think about it, we say, when you say somebody gets into trouble, it's like they get into hot water. Mm -hmm. Right. So think about when something encounters hot water, what happens to it? So you can think of things like, like a carrot. Okay. A carrot is normally very firm and sturdy, but it faces hot water. And what happens to it? It becomes soft and mushy and it just kinda of collapses in on itself. You can t- you can deal with hot water that way, right? You can be like, oh, you know, you be oh, I'm the big tough guy and then all of a sudden something happens and you just turn to mush. Now you can also approach it like an egg. Eggs are very, very fragile. They got a, a hard outer shell, but it's a very delicate shell. And if you break that, you know, you kind of destroy it and you get all gooey on the inside. When they approach hot water, when an egg encounters hot water, what happens to it? It, it gets firms hard. up. It gets firm. It gets hard. It gets a little bitter. That yolk is a little on the bitter side inside, right? So you so, want it
1: to be bitter?
2: No, no. <laughs> oh. You've got another choice. You've got another choice and you can, you can, you can deal with, with hot water the way coffee deals with hot water. Mm. The water doesn't change the coffee. The coffee changes the water,
1: right?
2: Everything kind of rolls off and the coffee says, I'm going to dominate this situation. I can come through this situation and I can make the situation
0: better. I'm going to give my best self into this changing of the water. Yes. Parts of myself. My <laughs> yeah. essential oils and yummy goodness. Yummy goodness.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's interesting because Mark is a big Bruce Lee fan, and I'm a fan of his also. Mark introduced me to one of his quotes, be like water, my friend. Um, yeah. And he was saying, like, water transforms to whatever environment or element it's yes. in. Yes.
0: You're getting quite a monster of a metaphor going in. also but it also still
2: dominates.
1: Yeah, and you know what I just thought of? I love in the whole spiritual realm, that thought of uh, bodhisattva is like a drop of water hitting the ocean. The essence of that drop is still present, but you can no longer know where the drop ends in the ocean. You know, it's all one now.
2: Right, but it's still itself. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Right, right,
0: right. So I want to probe an area of your naval naval career because, as a master chief journalist, <laughs> one of the things you had to decide was what was newsworthy or not, and you had to deal with command structures about things that might not be considered Ooh. releasable, things that might be classified, and. You know, we've we've spoken a lot in the comments in our culture recently about extraterrestrial things. (laughs) And I've always thought that perhaps the story of sea monsters might be undertold. And I'm wondering if you can confirm or deny any of the rumors that there have been sightings of earthly sea monsters at sea that have been hidden by the Navy.
1: We're looking for an exclusive here, John.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I cannot confirm nor deny. Any-
1: <laughs> <laughs> Release I, the Kraken.
2: <laughs> I, 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 w- I, will, I will tell you that uh, my personal experience, I've never encountered any of those such things.
1: Okay. Does that include UFOs? Because it seems like the Navy's heavily involved in what's been released over the past year and a half. Uh, nothing during my Navy career. Oh, wait a minute. What Um, about
2: outside your Navy Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: (laughs) Way, way before my Navy career, uh, back in, this would have been probably 1969. Yes, I'm that old. There was a uh, Delta-shaped vehicle that uh, flew over our neighborhood in New Jersey, and the whole neighborhood was out there checking it out. Got it. This is in Old Bridge, New Jersey. It was uh, sometime in the latter half of 1969. Wow.
1: Was there anything about its flight pattern that was beyond the norm? Um,
2: yeah, sideways. Oh. So it was going in one direction and then went completely 90 degrees in another direction, buzzed around for a little bit, and just kind of Uh, it went vertically out of sight.
0: Wow. Yeah.
2: It was very bizarre, and, uh, of course, I didn't – at that time in my life, I just knew it was uh, something that was out of the ordinary because flying saucers, in my mind, were what we saw in the movies, and they didn't have different shapes other than the round. So we had no idea what it was.
1: So when you were growing up, was there anything on TV? Like here, when I was growing up, we had creature features, the Saturday – late like, you know the alvira's one of the famous hosts of that kind of thing
2: so growing up in brooklyn new york we had uh well wor tv channel 9 was the one that played most of the scary movies late at night uh they also played chiller theater and creature feature and uh yeah those were those were great those were my staple um when i was growing up i lived in uh in in visual range of the verazano narrows bridge and i used to sit at my bedroom window with a pair of binoculars and a telescope because i was sure that flying saucers were going to be attracted to fly over the bridge i don't know why i thought that but but i did um invaders from mars the 1950s movie was a uh, very strong impact on me with the flying saucer that lands uh, in the field behind the kid's house. Uh-huh. And I was just sure I was going to have to wake up my dad in the middle of the night uh, and tell him about a flying saucer flying over the Verizeno Bridge. But it, it never did happen. And I'm kind of glad because in that movie, when he woke up his dad and his went dad went and investigated, he got possessed by the aliens. So we don't want that to happen. So
0: yeah. <laughs> we don't want that to happen. How what do, do you I- think is the most potent or the most powerful monster of monsters like Godzilla, King Kong, Mothra, alien, like where, where do you break down on who the badass monster is? Wow.
2: You know, I never really thought
0: of it that way. I'll be honest with you.
2: Um, Everyone has its own unique uh, abilities and powers and all of them have their own, uh, their own story. And a lot of them are, 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 are love stories, you know, in, in, unrequited love stories actually um but i would say i mean king kong was was still my overall favorite godzilla of course winds up being the all-powerful right because nothing actually really causes him harm uh, it, it cause it, it, you need another kaiju, another giant monster in order to really cause any harm to Godzilla. And, and even then, you know, he just kind of really brushes it off. So I think, you know, Godzilla was probably the biggest, toughest, badass, but at the same time, um, he, you know, in, in the end, in the later movies, he winds up becoming kind of a protector of humanity. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and if you think about it, he's kind of like, The neighborhood bully. I'm allowed to beat these people up, but you can't come from outside and beat my people up. And
0: I'm going to and fight you off that. All right. I want to play a game.
1: Wait, wait. Before you do that, let me Uh, because I'm interested in your experience as a journalist and with the military. So I imagine there's a depth and experience there beyond the normal journalist. What do you see comparing today's journalism? Oh, man. Yeah, the journal, your experience.
2: We are opening up a whole other can of. uh, That's why I
0: wanted to do the game before we went there because of monster (laughs) whooping. But I think you're right, Greg. This is an important question. Let's talk about it. So, you know,
2: first of all, let me describe the role of a Navy journalist because it's not just what people think. Um, and I thought, you know, I was a freelance journalist before I joined the Navy. I joined the Navy because I had no discipline in my life and I couldn't get up in the morning. Uh, you know, you had read some stuff about, about my bio, right? All the things I, I had done. I was bouncing around from job to job. Uh, I, and I did a lot of stuff in the nighttime. I wound up being, you know, a bartender, a stand up comic, and a disco dance instructor and all that stuff. That was all after I finally got some confidence, by the way. Right, uh, yeah. I had no confidence in high school. It took me a while to actually get that, and then I really, when I came out, I came out, man. I was like, I'm out here. <laughs> Notice me, um, <laughs> John Travolta. I was John. I was the original John Revolting. Yes, I was. <laughs> um, but but anyway, so at that point in my life, I knew I liked to write. I tried my stint as an electronics technician. I was good at it. But what I enjoyed doing was writing the training manual for my fellow journalists and also doing training sessions for them. So that all kind of the early involvement of where I wound up. But I enjoyed the writing and I went back to school for journalism and I uh, was a freelancer for a while. My problem was I was not reliable. I couldn't get up in the morning and I was always late to everything. So by the time I showed up at a news you know, worthy event, it was over. It was over. Yeah. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I said, I need some discipline. And so I, I said, I'm going to join the military to get some discipline. My friends thought I was nuts. I thought I was nuts, but I figured, what year you was know, there? this was uh 1981. Got it. And my kid brother actually uh, said to me, you know what? I'm thinking about going in the military. I need some direction in my life too. And I said, you know what? I probably need to go with you
1: hmm.
2: because I need to straighten up. And so we signed up together. We went in. We walked into the recruiting office, and, and neither of us wanted to go and, and and run through the mud and stuff. So, we, you know, Army, Marine Corps were right out right out of the <laughs> out of the picture. I got a fear of heights, so no Air Force for me. So I said, well, you know, we know how to swim. Let's do Navy, and that's how literally how we chose the Navy. Uh, so the <laughs> Navy had a, a program uh, that you could be a Navy journalist, and the other the other services did have public affairs specialist kind of positions and and that kind of thing. But it wasn't didn't seem to be the same. So I said, okay, I'm going to join the Navy as a Navy journalist. I figured I'd write the base newspaper or something like that. I found out that a Navy journalist does the entire spectrum of the communication field.
1: The The entire
2: spectrum. So when I reported aboard my ship. I ran two TV stations, two radio stations, and I was the the jock on all of those. I did the evening newscast. I wrote it and sat in front of the camera and filmed it. (laughs) Um, So I was the anchor as well. So you um, were the sole media. I was the sole person on board the ship. I did a shipboard newspaper. I did a monthly newsletter that went home to the families and to the local community. I handled all the press releases out to the press. I handled all the media queries. I was the speechwriter for the commanding officer. The ship pulled into port and I became tour guide and community relations dude. Uh, I was the ship's photographer. I was the videographer, producer for all of that stuff. Um I was a special events uh MC and uh oh I also answered fan mail. I love the Navy, would you send me a picture of your ship? Sure. And so it was the the whole spectrum of the communication field and uh and I I said this is really kind of cool. Yeah. Uh and so when I when I ultimately left the Navy, I realized that um I could not go and work for a newspaper or a TV station or whatever, I'd be bored to tears. Even though every story would be different, the skill set I would be using would be the same. Right. And so I wound up going into government agencies and serving in public affairs in, in government. And so, you know, over the course of 42 years, I worked across uh, government. So there was Navy and then there was also civilian uh, in okay. state government and federal government.
1: But coming back to the original question, comparing yep. your experience with journalism to the journalism yep. you see today.
2: Yeah. And that's what, that's what's going to, that's what was getting me back to that. So I got to look at journalism from both sides, from the producer of the news side, as well as the person who's working with the the journalist community to tell stories. And it has changed dramatically. Um, it was definitely much more objective, uh, back in the older days. The media outlets had a little more, um, uh, Ability to have people focus on certain topic areas. There were more beat reporters that were focused on certain things. When I worked for the Maryland Department of Natural Resources and the Maryland Department of Environment, there was an environmental reporter at the Baltimore Sun. He knew as much about the environmental issues in the community as, as my scientists did who worked at the departments. And so – I could very easily coordinate interviews with them and they could talk all that science stuff. And half of the time, i didn't even have to understand it. You know, they were able to talk and communicate well. And I was a trusted, again, there's that word, uh, a a trusted relationship that we could have with them. As media has evolved over the years and newsrooms have shrunk, most of the reporters now, especially on mass media, uh, major media outlets, are um, general assignments which means they don't have the, the time or the latitude or the op- opportunity to focus on single topics. Most of the time, they're writing a story about one thing in the morning and a, a whole different topic in the afternoon and a different one for the evening. And so they're constantly having to change focus. They don't have the time. They've got to put out X amount of stories a day. They don't have the time to deep dive and do real research on something. So they'll do a quick look up on the Internet, form an opinion about something, and when they reach out to do an interview or talk to somebody, they're really coming in just to validate the opinion they've already formed. I don't want to bash the, the journalist community, right, but right, that yeah. is how the industry has kind of evolved. So as a media spokesperson for that part of my role when I was in government, I spent most of my time trying to educate reporters on what the topic is and the background and why they're perception might not be even in line with the truth before I even would set up an interview with with folks. But it was was definitely a different kind of world, and things have become much more opinionated now where it was not allowed in the past.
0: How how do you think that has hollowed out the ability of the American populace to reason through various issues?
2: You know, uh, people have a tendency to... um, Believe whoever they choose to believe. And so, uh, with the uh, opinionated, um, and it's not just in media, but I mean, it happens everywhere. Uh, we kind of select the people that we choose to emulate. And we align our beliefs with somebody who is kind of saying something that we think we believe. It's very, very difficult to get people to change their mind. So if somebody has a wrong perception of something, they're going to seek the media outlet that validates that perception. And I think that's really kind of skewed society quite a bit um, because we've allowed that to happen. Instead of having fewer news outlets that were focused on truly objective reporting of the news – there are so many outlets out there that all have their own perspective. They've all got their own pundits uh, that want to uh, postulate an, an opinion on how people should interpret the news. And people, you know, I don't want to put the general public down, but a lot of folks, they don't want to think on their own. Tell me what I should be, should how I should interpret this. And then if it sounds right to them, they'll go with that. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot of that in society, and I think that really has impacted the way people have learned to treat each other, uh, which is why I find the thing that I'm working on to try to help people to learn to treat each other better just so much more needed.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I agree. The critical thinking skills of the American population have been de- deeply impacted by the lack of the Fairness Doctrine and the inability of various entities and news outlets to have a debatable, you know, like crossfire style. If you're old enough, you understand what crossfire was on yeah, CNN. Yeah, yeah, right. Um and and but, 60 minutes even used to be like that, right? They they would interview different people and to have a an A and B kind of a, a awareness of the issue and then right. we got to make up our own minds. Right. So that that's but
2: Nowadays, yeah, it's it's we make it easy for people. This is what happened, this is what you should think about it.
0: Right. And, and then, it's hurting us yeah. because instead of a population that leads, we have a population that follows. The propaganda monsters rule the world. The biggest monster that
2: we have actually right out there. Um, well, one of the biggest. The other biggest is hate. Right? Yeah. Hate and Hate and fear. Yes, and they're 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 closely bound to each other because we yeah, we, we what fear I'm, what we hate and we hate what we fear. Right?
1: That's what I was thinking. That actually, it's really fear, and you know, so often I hear like fears masked with anger, fears masked with like you keep digging down. Right. Like well, you saying, if really. you
2: think about that, right, the fear is because we really don't understand, and right. we don't understand because we're not seeing it in the proper light. That goes back to the whole thing about shining that, you know, reaching right. in and getting that light and shining it out there on, <laughs> on, on things and lighting it up and illuminating it and getting a good understanding for what the what the real issue
1: is. I'm never going to get tired of that little trick you have. <laughs>
0: and one of the great things about the old monster movies is that they often near the third act. Would begin to open up that awareness of the thing that we fear actually having a human side to it, and that would create this this kind of uncomfortable awareness of why we were hating the monster. Like, like we were saying with Frankenstein yes. earlier, he's just a lost child, and you know the Wolfman has no choice in the matter, and Dracula has no choice in the matter. They they are they are compelled by a biological imperative that they can't control and they can't escape. And so yeah. you almost are, you can see the Wolfman like almost grateful that he's about to get the, you know, the silver bullet because he's, he'll be released from the perennial, the perpetual suffering.
2: God, yeah, you know, it, just, it, it, In a lot of the movies, you know, he's actually pleading for that. He pleading yeah. for release.
1: I just drew the analogy between uh, of mice and men and I forget the one who had the uh, um, you know was mentally challenged. I forget the name of that character, but and Frankenstein and they both had that element of innocence, and a young girl was killed, and ultimately, the best thing for him was to die because and they played on that in uh, in the original
2: Frankenstein movie where where Frankenstein is uh, the Frankenstein monster is, is kind of walking around and he encounters this little girl who's right. playing and you know, the innocence of the child, she doesn't see him as a horrible monster, right. Right. right? She just sees a person and she treats him like a playmate and they start playing together and they start floating flowers in the water. And all he knows is we, we take pretty things and we throw them in the water to float. Well, he ran out of flowers. So the only pretty thing he saw that he could put in the water and float was her. Uh. And then she didn't want to stay in the water. So he kept pushing her back in the water. And ultimately she drowned. So he had no concept of what he was doing wrong. Right.
1: And of Um, mice and men, he liked these soft things, you know, but he was so strong that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's so much symbolism in that and so much uh, uh, for us all to like, pay attention to in the way we are overdoing it with each other or overdoing it with our zealousness in how we take up sides in the, the political issues of our time. And it just, be, we become the monsters in that scenario. We have. Yeah. And we have to be on guard for that. Yeah,
2: we do. And we've got to stop forming opinions on stuff that we have no knowledge of, you know, there's so much that we, we, we do in our own brain. Uh, when we're going down the street and you see somebody approaching you, right? And in just a, just three seconds, literally, that's what science proves. In three seconds, we've made a decision if we're going to stay our course and make that person go around us, if we're going to step aside and let them go, them go straight, or if we're going to cross the street and avoid them altogether. And we've made that decision based on just one little visual cue that happened in three seconds. You know, we're, we're like that.
1: As we're talking about horror, and we certainly have a horror that erupted this last weekend on our planet, one of many, of course. But part of what I was talking with my brother about it last night is right and wrong just disappears. Because what you have is all these dead and brutally injured people. Yes, And... Yeah, so on that note, let's have a game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wait. Wait. What is you had this experience with your brother Greg and there's this <laughs> sadness that comes as a result of the recognition of the futility of this, right? And there's mm-hmm. this dichotomy between the noble warrior who if he makes one misstep becomes the monster. Yes. And that misstep can happen through the leadership or the mistake of the leader, the zealotry of the noble warrior in his passionate responses to something where his anger takes him over and, and occludes his reason, there's a number of ways in which this idea of us being courageous in the face of fear can become reactivity, which then becomes toxic and, and does damage to ourselves and to our, our loved ones and the human family and we're all part yeah. of that and era it, that grew up go ahead john go ahead no
2: i was just going to say and it's just a matter of it's just a it's because of a different perception of what is right
1: yeah that's why so often the perspective of the storyteller is really giving the slant of the story which kind of brings us to that whole journalism thing mm-hmm. you know where right. you i remember taking some journalism classes in um university and really learning the importance of objectivity. I got a B instead of an A because I wasn't objective enough. And, um,
2: <laughs> it's and hard. it's it really very hard. It really is. It really yeah. is hard not to have, uh, not to insert your opinion on things. Right. Uh, it's also really hard to, um, to listen to someone's problems without offering a yeah. solution. When sometimes all they need is so, for you to hear them. That was the biggest lesson I had to learn when I got married.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is such a cliche, but it's so real. I, I don't want me. your
2: answer. I just want to tell. I just want to tell you. Right. I want your empathy. Ultimately. Right. Yes. Yes. And, Let me fix know, this
0: for you so I can relieve my discomfort at having to witness your pain. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh. so true, though. Yeah. yeah. So. There's this element of what we used to teach back in the day in debate courses, Mm -hmm. which is when you you pick a point of view to to prepare for and to support. And then the debate process involves point counterpoint, right? Where people say something and then someone's allowed to respond to it. And then the ultimate is then the teacher makes you switch the role you have to support. Yes. And this is an important thing that's missing from American education, because the moment that you have to argue the thing that isn't inherently part of your belief system, it forces you into an analysis of what it is about the other person's point of view that might have factual merit or might have emotional resonance based on the human condition. And this is the beginnings of the formation of intellectual empathy which is a step beyond sort of the abstraction of, of emotional empathy because emotional empathy, we might feel it and it might confuse us and, and we're not quite sure of it. It makes us uneasy. Right. But then there's this elevation of it to where it becomes an intellectual understanding that creates a new layer of connectivity where we can actually experience what it feels like and what the point of view of the other person is or the other um, group is. And I think in my own life, that was so important as I argued with people about 911 or the Kennedy assassination or Trump or any of these things, was learning that if I was able to put myself in their position their and yeah. argue their position. I became much more clear about their experience and where it was coming from.
2: You know what they say, walk a mile in someone else's shoes, right? Well, then you're a mile away and you have their shoes. So, uh, no, (laughs) or walk a mile in the mummy's wraps that that's often, but I mean, if you think about it, that's really what it comes down to. Right. And, and, that is such a a loss to our education system when they stop doing all of all of that kind of training. I know how important it was for me uh, as well, especially you know going into the public affairs community, uh, which I'd spent so many years in doing. Uh, but it also, I mean, it helps really to open your eyes. I remember doing a uh, training program uh, with the uh, the Maryland Department of Natural Resources and. Uh, Trying to get people to understand about uh, interacting with the public in different environments. And the people in the Wildlife Division and the people in the Boating Administration and the people in the Forest Service and the people in the Park Service all have different perspectives and different ways of interacting with the public for very different reasons. Like the Natural Resources Police were, you know, they were looking, unfortunately, to arrest people for drunk boating and for, uh, you know, poaching. Whereas, you know, other folks were, you know, had a you know, park service was a very different kind of interaction. And so what I did was I had people actually change roles. So same thing as in the debate class, right? You change roles and you now behave with these behavioral characteristics, with this type of an audience, with this type of a motivation. And you find that you cannot approach them with the same tactics you would have done over here. Yeah. And it's fun
0: watching the, the light come on in people's heads yes they realize one the difficulty that the role has inherent in it right and each each person's point of view each whatever and thing you're coming from it has this challenge element to it that that's not easy this human challenge element where we have to find that part of ourselves that reflects our values and our vision for who we are as human beings and then how do we embody that effectively how do we become you know that and you know, it, you know,
2: Mark, you, you bring up a really great point. I mean, to understand that other people are looking at things through a different lens, right? And they're seeing things a little bit differently. And sometimes just that knowledge will help us with a better understanding. Um, you know, there's there's a, a, a goofy little uh, thing that I do in in my training where uh, I'll have a box, Okay, And one group of people can only look in a hole in the top of the box. And when they look in the top of the box in that hole, they see a circle. And so they have to determine what's inside the box. And so because they see a circle, they make an assumption that what's in that box is a ball or a globe or, or something round. And that is, they're going to treat the box with that uh, n- that notion. There's another group of people that they can only look in a hole that's on the side of the box. And when those people look in that, that hole, what they see is a triangle. So in their mind, in the way they're treating the box, is this thing is triangular in shape. It's a pyramid or something like that. Uh, but until both of those groups communicate to each other what they're seeing, they don't. Uh, neither of them understand that what's inside that box is a cone, which is round and triangular. Right, Right? but without that perception, you're going to do things differently. And so that's why, you know, it's really, really important for us to understand that other people from other cultures, other backgrounds, Mm -hmm. other trainings, other positions, other hierarchy, hierarchical positions are seeing things through a different lens that may actually help us understand the situation more instead of this whole, oh, I know what I'm doing kind of a thing. You
1: know, I just had this light this morning in my thoughts of because I was saying, gosh, why are they so stupid? And then I thought, wait, they're not stupid. They're acting with the information they have.
2: They have or what they chose to believe. Right. See, we right. all we all choose our trusted messenger. Right. Right. Exactly. And it goes back to that trust again, right? So whether or not somebody's proven to be trustworthy or not, somewhere along the line, there was something that they said or did that resonated with that individual and they choose to, to emulate or to follow what that individual, uh, then says or portrays or, or, or right. the way they act.
1: But even that choice is coming from a place of experience and belief. You know, so then you start unraveling all the psychology of childhood and environment and all these chaotic deep. neurology, you know. That, yeah.
0: But uh, the betrayal of trust is the foundational root of trauma experience in people's lives. And whether that's a trusted parent or a trusted sibling or a trusted teacher or a trusted policeman, those yes. things all shift uh, the way we are capable of of experiencing our reality. Because once that is ingrained in our nervous system, fear becomes the default response. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And once that trust is violated, it's really, really hard to change
1: it yeah uh,
2: you know years ago I was working uh and there was a uh there was a scientist who absolutely refused to do any any publicity with press because uh she had been been wronged by a reporter in the past and it took me probably two years to get her to trust me that I would not subject her to you know a hostile reporter that was going to twist her 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 right. uh, her story right. um you know, but it it's it takes a lot of work to build a trust. And even if I wasn't the one who violated it, right? But because right. of her past experience.
1: Well, let me ask you this. In your relationship with your wife, that being one of your most intimate relationships in life, we're human beings. There are we make mistakes. So how do you both deal with when trust is broken within your relationship? Or it does that even happen.
2: We work very, very hard not to violate that trust.
1: I mean it's really what it comes down to. So right? does it seem more we, like mistakes then? Like, oh, John made a mistake and we can work with it. Yeah, that. I mean, you know it's it's it thankfully, you know, anything that we've had
2: like that has been, you know, piddly. It's not been like a big, really, really
0: bad student right, there's mistake, oops, right? Oops, I forgot to get bread, and there's oops, I put my penis in someone else.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> We're fortunate, and, like, neither of us have, have really kind of violated the trust in those in those ways. But, you know, but it, that's what it comes down to, right? It's And then it's like, okay, what, what's your battle, right? <laughs> right, right, right. How right. big of a deal is this, yeah. All right? Is she going to trust me to go to the grocery store again? Probably. Probably right. <laughs> is she going to trust, trust me to go to the brothel?
1: Probably not.
2: You know. Right. Right?
1: <laughs> well, you know. Yeah. Okay. So,
2: um, <laughs> hey, we just we just celebrated our thirty eighth anniversary. Wow! Oh,
1: congratulations. congratulations. All right. Really cool. Very very cool. Um, I really wanted. I'm she was tolerant. Next game. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, b- go wait, ahead, uh, Greg. Before we do, I'm wondering. What's the scariest movie or even maybe book? Do you read? Do you like reading horse? I
2: read constantly. I, we just, we just moved. I thought I had 85 boxes of books. And, uh, and when we, when we got here to the new house, we started unpacking and I, I had about 30 boxes of books here in my office, you know, kind of the professional books and stuff. And then, uh, then we opened about 10 boxes of mystery books that we put in the, in the dining room, kind of make it a little parlor thing. And, uh, and then all my, my horror and science fiction and all that kind of, uh, books, those were still boxed up and those were going to go into my man cave. Um, so I figured okay, there's probably about 40, maybe 50 boxes of books down there still left over. And then I, I, donated a few boxes of stuff and all that. And I said, I can't have that many more. I had 125 more boxes of books in the basement. And so, yeah, I've got to uh, reconfigure what I was planning to do with the, with the man cave down there. So.
1: All right. So I imagine, yes, I read constantly. All right. So I imagine that one isn't going to be appropriate, but what's one of the top scariest experiences? Like what creator... Handed you something that just scared the bejesus out of you. Oh man. Um
2: You know, it's it's a it's a toss up between uh some of Dean Koontz's earlier stuff uh and Robin Cook. Don't know Robin. Robin Cook is the medical thriller guy and um man he's come up with some stuff you know I, I think i'm basically a subconscious hypochondriac and so you know i'm reading this stuff and 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 i'm i'm you know getting the symptoms that he's talking about um, but there was a there was a book he wrote and i'm trying to remember the name the thing is called markers and uh and people would go into the hospital for something simple like having like a a hip replacement or, a, you know, a-
0: something <laughs> simple like a hip replacement.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Life-threatening. Okay. Yeah. minimal yeah, yeah, surgery. So but then there were some things, you know, that were much more minor, you know, having a polyp removed or something. Right. Um, and then they would wind up dying. And uh, and it was all because the insurance companies had determined that they had a marker for cancer or something more serious down the road. And they didn't want to pay for that. So they actually were were arranging for people. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, I'm sorry. I am going to just deal with this head cold. I am not going. To that. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, so, this, but it's just... stuff like that, you know, that it's the stuff that it's wacky, but that could happen. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah,
1: well, so this, especially we're here in California, and pretty much every week it hits the news another insurance company is dropping home policies yes, in California. Yes. Yeah, So yeah. Florida's obviously money-oriented, you can see.
0: All right, so this fear of doctors translates perfectly into this monster game that I devised oh, in oh prepping my. for the show. Now, just to give you a hint, the name of the game Is Monster Island of Dr. Moreau the Third. And in the game, you are the third descendant of Dr. Moreau, uh, but you've now moved to Monster Island, not just Dr. Moreau's Moreau's Island. And you get to combine the genetic material from two monsters to create a super monster. What would you do? How would, would you combine and why? Wow I'll go first.. Okay. Go so I would combine the xenomorph from Alien with King Kong. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this seven-story xenomorph that's also, you know, covered with fur and slime and, and like has the, these giant teeth that shoot out and, and acid for blood. Well, you've had some time to think about this one. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I just <laughs> thought that up. Well, I'm poking my brain, the monster novel uh, in my brain. Well, I'm going to think
2: about it for just a moment. I, I want to. I'm going to ask Igor. Igor, you tell us your idea for a monster.
1: Well, um, what's the the big monster in the, the trilogy of the king? I just forgot the name. The trilogy um, of the king. I mean, the, you know, Hobbit series. Oh, Sauron? Sauron. Yeah. I'd combine Sauron with former President Trump.
0: Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm scared. I'm really scared. No place on Earth is safe. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's it. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Middle, Middle, Middle Earth
0: is gone. You can see the hat. Make Middle Earth great again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think you'd have like this um this this very powerful like Sauron was so powerful with the dense you know thickness of the other individual. <laughs> <laughs> I just want
2: to curl up with
1: my teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> While you're thinking, because there are some real scares of my life that have been created by some brilliant creators, but did you ever read Red Dragon? Oh yes, I yeah, couldn't. Thomas Harris' book, yeah, yeah, I couldn't finish it. I was like so intense. I was, I got about three quarters of the way through, and it was just so psychologically unnerving. To as like, I, I can't do this. Oh
2: my. Uh yeah, and it, it, it well that again, that's a psychological horror too. Right, right. Right. That's that's getting into the human monster. And I think the human monster is the worst of all. Yeah. Um that's you know, let let's let's be honest. Um but if I were to go with uh, fictional monsters, um you know, because I'm so strongly focused on trust. I think one of the factors of the the, the scariest of all monsters is the um, uh, just uh, mystique the the shape changing ability of mystique Ooh. who can reach yeah. into your brain and pull out you know an image yeah. and and become that um, and i would uh, i would i 'm trying to think of what I would combine that with because I think that in itself is just scary enough um but i would uh combine that with <sighs> hmm
0: probably the blob wow i was just gonna say that like, literally, in my brain, at, it's like your Mystique or something. You pulled that out of my head.
1: <laughs> Have either of you guys, did you watch Jessica Jones' series on Netflix?
2: Yeah, I thought it was awesome.
1: Yeah, same here, especially that first season with that bad guy. Like, you're just talking about being able to reach into someone's brain. It, he was so scarily powerful and just...
2: Yeah, yeah, Th- yeah. Th- those kind of psychological abilities, those are the ones that, yeah. that, that, you know, I think terrify me the most because I think what I, what I, I treasure the most is the, is my sanity, which is questionable in itself, but, right. uh, but, but my, my ability to be able to trust. And so, you know, if somebody is going to skew my perception of something, Wow. And that that terrifies me more than anything else. I think like if looking looking down the road, I think if there is if there's any disease I fear getting, it's dementia.
1: Mm. That's
2: wild. That's interesting. I I fear that more than, you know, more than the the big C. So,
0: yeah, well, you you might want to use the product that uh, Igor and I have developed, adrenochrome soda. Yeah, it prevents all it prevents <laughs> we dementia.
1: it from the basement of a pizza parlor just down the road.
0: I love it. I love it.
2: Well, I have to tell you, you know, my adrenal system is a mess. <laughs> uh, and and the reason why is because when I was in the Navy, I drank, you're going to have to believe this, six to ten pots
1: of coffee a day. Oh, my God. And it's
2: wow. good, you know, heavy, dark black. Wow. I mean, it was, you know, potent stuff. And I drank it black. Um, and I would six to 10 pots of it a day. Um, so I, I had the metabolism of a hummingbird back then. I swear. I mean, I was, I was and I was wired. I was moving around 90 miles an hour. Um, and my, so I destroyed my digestive tract, mm. all the, uh, the, the tannic acids and the caffeine and all that. And it also messed up my whole adrenal
0: system. Wow. I'm so sorry.
2: What do you do to help heal that? Uh, well, you stop caffeine. <laughs> right, so I quit caffeine and smoking at the same time. So, wow. needless to say, I'm not that 110 pound little kid anymore. No, no, I'm a I'm a I'm a double exodonus now.
1: You must have been a real I boy do. for that first thirty days of that choice.
0: I was an asshole. <laughs> Talk about monsters. I would caffeine and nicotine in the same week. Yeah. I know. He's I still actually, married. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I told you my wife was tolerant. Yeah. Right. Wow. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Brilliant. You must be great in bed, John.
1: <laughs> oh, we went there, we? Okay. I, I'm a really
2: good sleeper, yes, thank you
0: <laughs> All right, it's come to that time in the program where we ask the question of questions that we ask all of our guests Eminem oh, should have paid more attention. or foo fighters
2: Oh, foo fighters All right. all right. thank you T. Have you ever seen them live? I have not. okay, I have not i'm a i really uh like uh jazz and blues ah. actually so uh as a matter of fact uh my my wife used to manage uh peter Tork's blues band oh yeah peter torque from the monkeys yeah, yeah. yeah blues band yeah. shoe suede blues and uh I, I always liked the blues but i didn't really understand understand uh what was so powerful about them until i until we met peter and uh and his blues band and traveled around with it and all that and it was a a marvelous period of our life um we were friends for over 20 years he Um, lived out here in marin county for a while didn't he he did he did but he then he was in he was in his uh, family home in connecticut for a while toward the end there
1: did you ever play the Sweetwater in mill valley uh I do not recall if he did before it may have before we started working with him. Okay.
0: And the but, blues uh, appeals to you at like a root level, right? Like there's this it absolutely thing does.
1: Oh come on, that was a bad pun, Mark,
0: please. Uh, it was unintentional. I don't even know what I said, so Blue, pardon my ignorance. Root. Roots. Oh, okay. Well, well anyway. Um but as far as jazz goes, who's yeah. like in your C D player or on your um on your Apple device? that you're, you're loving. You're right going to laugh. Etta James. Oh, that's, that's a powerful, powerful voice, man. Yeah. Delivering yeah. the soulful messages of, of a, a real powerful emotional experience. Yeah. Etta James, yeah. a goddess yep. for sure. Yep. Yep.
1: What about, do you like Nina Simone?
2: Uh, I haven't really listened to her much. Okay. I'll get, be honest. I have
1: not. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> um, do you ever make it out to the, um, uh, Monterey jazz festival here in California? I've not wanted to. Haven't been out there yet. Well, you're not dead, so there's still time. That was plenty of time. Plenty of time. I am.
0: Uh, you know, things are out, going
2: so. well. I'm. I'm. am uh, I'm, I'm going to be 65 next month. Congratulations. Right. And uh and I'm and I'm working on my second million. So all right, uh, that's because awesome. the first the first one didn't work out, so I just started over. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. It's great. That's great. so funny. It didn't a, it didn't happen, man, so I'm just gonna okay. <laughs> Let's just try for number two.
1: <laughs> all right. I I love that. That's I can take that one. I'm gonna steal that. From you could
0: you. use that one. That's Thank all right. You. So I'll only charge yeah. you a small commission. Okay. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about share your fire and your, the way that you get access to you as a motivational speaker and someone who helps companies create better results in that field. Well, thank you for giving me the
2: opportunity to plug. Uh, yeah. So uh, real easy. My website is uh, com. Verico with uh, two R's. Verico with two R's. V-E-R-R-I-C-O. Um, so, and I'm all over social media. You look up John Verico, you'll find me. John Verico speaks on uh, Facebook and on my social media. We actually publish a monthly calendar. Uh, it's a challenge calendar. <clears throat> and then every day we will kind of elaborate on kind of that, that day's point uh, that's on the calendar. So uh, <clears throat> next month is on um Next month is on gratitude, so we're actually focused on on, on November right now, um, and uh, and this month is on. Um, uh, it's not kindness, uh, but it's it's in that category. I just went brain dead on the word generosity. Um, no empathy. Uh, hold on, give me half a second, and I'll tell you exactly what it is. I can't believe I just completely zoned out on it. I've got oh, it. Oh, I believe it. Right? It. it happens oh, to me all
0: the time. You might positivity. Positivity. It's the
2: positivity yeah, challenge. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So it's all about you know finding the positive amongst all the other garbage in life. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, so what I do is um, when I work with clients, I try to learn a lot about their organization, their hierarchical structure, um, how things work, what challenges they're facing. Sometimes they want me to come in and help fix a problem, and sometimes they just want me to kind of come in and boost things up. Uh, mostly, what I wind up doing is um is is working with folks to help them overcome a situation, whether it's uh, some some kind of a change the organization is going through, or they they're going to try something new, or maybe something went wrong, uh, that kind of stuff. So, so um, but skill- I work very closely to try to understand. Uh, who they are, what they're about, um, how they operate, how they interact with each other. And then I'll come in, I'll put together a program. It might be just a keynote that I do at a a special event. Other times it's a a full day or multi-day workshop where we kind of deep dive into things uh, and get to uh, come up with new solutions. But they're their solutions. I don't come in and tell people, you will do this to make it different. I let them come up with what those solutions are. And then I do the same thing with individual coaching.
0: That sounds organic and it iterates on their natural talents as opposed to trying to impose a whole change, see change yeah, up. In their operation. Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's, 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 it's them, right? It's, it's they're not going to trust me if I try to come in and, and, and tell them what to do, right? They're going to go, who the heck are you? Uh, so yes. we, we build that, we build that trust by, by showing that I understand who they are and where they're coming from. I give them the opportunity to grow. I respect them as an individual. We communicate with each other and we understand that we're all humans. There's that torch again, yeah, yeah,
0: beautiful.
1: <laughs> How does he do that? That's three. That's brilliant. All
0: right, what's your favorite Halloween candy to give out? Since this is going to air the day before Halloween.
2: Oh, to give out—it's uh, whatever I don't eat myself. But I actually, my, my my personal favorite is candy corn. Believe it or not.
1: Oh my oh. god! Wow. How about yeah, you,
2: Greg? Those guys. <laughs>
1: You know, I think Reese's Peanut Butter Cup is a tried and true. You just can't go wrong with that one.
0: Yeah, yeah I like Mounds great. and Almond Joy.
2: Oh, Sometimes dude, you, you actually hit now. on my favorites. I try not to eat too much of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anything with coconut in it, really? Mounds. Yeah, and especially the Mounds because it's got the dark chocolate complement. There's a really yeah. good. But notice, I uh, we're we're not talking about what I give out. Talking right. about so what you We eat. have mounds in the house. They're not going
0: out to the kids. Right. Mounds
1: in the house.
0: <laughs> There's a candy that I found in uh, both Whole Foods and in uh, Costco that is low sugar. That's coconut and dark chocolate. Hmm. I'm there. And where is it? What's it called? I don't remember the name of it. But it's their brand is actually pretty well distributed. So you can probably find it. What I know is that the cap packaging is that, that teal Tiffany blue color and it has a picture of a, of a, you know, a beautiful piece of coconut chocolate. Right. It's oh nice my. One. I'm going to have yeah, Yes. So definitely have to look. Yeah, and it. I think it's less than two grams of sugar per serving. Wow. Oh, that's, that's ideal. That sounds yeah. great. I need yeah. to find that.
2: So yeah, email me the name of that when you, <laughs> when you okay. find it. I will. I will. Um, hey, can I? Uh, can I? It's up to you if you want to keep this part in. But uh, can I plug my book? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Yeah. literally. So, so I
2: don't have my own full book out yet, but I've been a co-author in in multiple books, and uh, this one literally is just coming on the street. It's cracking the rich code, and it's hey, with Jim. It's with Jim Britt and Kevin
0: That's Harrington, yeah. and uh, endorsed by Tony Robbins. Wow! So, uh, so we so can see it. Move it out of the way of the mic. Oh, there we go. Cracking the rich code. Right. Wow. This is
2: volume eleven. Okay. Um, so I'm, I've actually I've actually have a chapter in in volume eleven as well as in the previous uh, volume ten. And in volume ten, uh, when they asked me to to write uh, for the book, and they said it's cracking the rich code, I said, "Well, dude, you know I don't have you know I'm not a money guy," and they said. Well, that's okay because it's about richness in life. Is it great? So, my chapter in in volume ten is about um, what our richness is in life. Our legacy is not the things we have or the amount of money we have, but it's what we'll be remembered for. And it's all yeah. about how we treat each other. And so that was uh, in volume ten and volume eleven, which literally is coming on the street in the next you know in the next week or so. Um, that one I wrote about uh, how to avoid the things that hold us back. And that's judgment, blame, regret, and guilt. Mm.
0: Well, John, well, we should have started the show about this book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: we're doing it. But I want to say, but I appreciate you your letting me pitch that. And yeah. they can get them on my website. If you mm-hmm. get them on Amazon, you don't get the version that has my picture on the cover. Every Ooh. one of the co-authors. Has a special edition with their picture in the co- on the oh, cover. Oh, that's funny. Right. So you
1: so can they, buy this book through your website? Through my
2: website, yep. They can get it directly from me and I'll even sign it for them.
1: So that's there you go. Very kind. Um, you look like a very wealthy man, John, and your presence is one of wealth. And, and it's just what you just spoke of, it's not what you have in the bank down the street it's what you've banked in your heart and soul and it's very much appreciated
2: i am i am very very wealthy and very rich in in what i have in my life with um happiness i'm fortunate enough to have decent health i've got a wonderful wife uh we don't have any children we're doing our part to prevent child abuse so uh so, so there's that uh, but we've, got, we've got some wonderful friends and uh, and i really love what i do uh, i love working with people and i love helping people and so that's what gives me my my richness and my reward in life. It's beautiful. Wow. And and getting and getting the opportunity to chat with guys like you.
1: Well, that's...
0: <laughs> wow. Like I just want to keep going and ask you about when your next stand-up comic routine might happen. When are you gonna do some more stand-up, Tom?
2: You know, I actually do them uh just for special events. So I don't have anything uh on the on the on the radar at the moment. Um I actually am not going to do. I usually do in around the holidays. I've got a gig called uh, Santa's Cousin Vinny. Oh my gosh! Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I uh, go into uh, like the holiday parties at an organization, and I'll be a uh, special guest, uh, or I'll MC the event uh, as Santa's Cousin Vinny. And basically, you know, it's, it's jingle the freaking bells. How you doing there?
1: You know,
0: it's kind of I of like, would love uh, it if Santa's cousin Vinny might do a holiday performance uh, and interview Greg and I on the Moped Outlaws. I, I would love to do that. Maybe we can do that.
1: All right. Because uh, yeah. right, we've been they wondering about the end of the season thing. Maybe that's
0: I, it. I will come as Fester the Elf to that event. Fester <laughs> the Elf. I love it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right. We could do a little something, all right? All right. Yeah. Yes, let's do
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, guys, thank you so much. This has been thank awesome Thank you, John. You played full out. I love that about you. And thank you for your service to this country and your golden heart. It's it's been so much fun talking with you. Thank you so much. You know, it's guys like you that just light my fire.
1: Uh, How's he do that? <laughs>
0: Be sure to go to YouTube to find out all of the magic that you could possibly uh, <laughs> absorb from John Verico, and share your fire. Because if you're just listening on the on iTunes or whatever, you're missing out. And remember to subscribe and share.
2: And, and, and that's it, right? You change. get that you get that fire going, and you share that with others.
1: Ooh. <laughs>
2: Recording stopped.